Hello, and welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex, I work for the Old Fire Station Art Centre in Oxford, and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners, and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today, our topic of the week is going to be AI in theatre, and what's our topic of the week in the course? Drama, defining it, how you do it, what it is, how you write it, all of that. Lovely. So I'm just going to go through what's coming up at the Old Fire Station this week. We have Jen Brister, the comedian, who is doing, I believe, her third of four sold out dates with us. She's also coming again in June and she's also sold out then. Um, wow. I know. She, the people love her. But you can still sign up to the waiting list if you would like tickets for that and you might get a last minute ticket if you're lucky if someone drops out. And then we have a play called Fragments on the 12th and 13th based on real academic work where they found these fragments of papyrus. And it's basically about how people try to construct stories from tiny bits of information. Mm. So could this fragments of play be a lost play by Euripides or could they not be? I love that stuff. I love those Greek plays where they just have one word left. It's very that. Amazing. Yeah. It, it invites your imagination, doesn't it? Exactly. That sounds great. So it's been great. And um, as before, we are hiring. We're looking for an exhibition technician and a CEO. So please do check out the website if you're interested in either of those things, oldfirestation.org.uk. So our news topic of the week is AI in theatre. So I have some questions for you and I have a little surprise game round. Right. So the stage had an opinion piece on AI. So have you heard about the Sony photographic award that was won by a piece of AI yes. photography. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, this is an artist who submitted a piece for a photography prize. And the people who run the photography prize say that they knew that it was AI and that he's just showboating, basically. And oh, he says that, that he's, he's basically using this to prove that AI is, is a serious threat to art and is going to take over art. The editor of the stage has said that in um, the Future of Theatre Conference, panellists were asked what effect AI might have on the future of playwriting. The consensus was that AI couldn't do emotion and therefore there was no need to worry. I'm less convinced. If I were running a literary department or a new writing prize, I would be fully expecting to receive submissions created largely using AI and would be concerned that I might not be able to tell the difference. So my question is, do you think AI poses a threat to theatre? And what do you think the role of AI might be in theatre? And I also have a, uh, I have two monologues for you to see whether you can tell. Oh, great. That's, one of them is written by a human and one of them is written that. by an AI. Love that. Um, also, can I tell, and also which one do I prefer? Yeah. Um, um, would you like the monologues first or? Yeah, go on, let's do, the, okay. let's do the. So um, I have them written down and I've also asked actor theatre maker, Oxford resident and uh, person on the course, Justine Malone, to record them as voice notes. Wow. So here are the monologues. Would you like to hear them read? Why don't I hear them before okay, I read you can them? hear them. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to play them here. So here's one. He used to read to me every night. And his voice was soothing and his stories were magical. <laughs> I remember snuggling up next to him, listening to every word and feeling safe. 
But now all I can remember is the sound of the machines beeping, the smell of antiseptic and the sight of him lying there. I miss him so much and I, I wish he was here to read me a story one more time. But I know he's still with me in every page I turn and every story I hear. And I know he'll always be a part of me. That was the mm, first one. one. Thank you, Justine, for good reading acting, these. Yes. She's very good, isn't yeah, she? Very persuasive. Uh, okay, this is the second one. Do you know what I remember? When my father read to me <laughs> stupid things, uh, dragons and heroes, he wouldn't turn a page until I reached over and took his hand. That big man made every step of the story my choice. I love that. Those last weeks I read to him. I had to take his hand to turn the pages and I couldn't tell if he was too weak or if it was the old game. No one tells you how to mourn. And when someone says move on, you take their hand and say, my choice. Ooh. Ooh. Which do you think is... So one of them's real. Mm. And then I asked chat gpt yeah to write me a monologue that was Based similar that idea. Yeah. yeah yeah uh well i wonder what our listeners feel about it um i'm gonna say that i think the first one is chat gpt and the second one is the writer you are correct yes do you want to know why i thought that yes because i thought the the three things that linking it through about the game of not turning a page, I reached over and took a hand and then taking his hand to turn the pages. And then you take their hand and say, that just feels a bit more thought through and, and distinctive than AI can currently do. That's what it felt like to me. I agree. And it was interesting as well with asking ChatGPT to do it. Like I asked it a few times in a few different ways until yeah. I got one that was sort of similar enough that it wouldn't be incredibly obvious. Yeah. And it was really interesting to me how lots of it stayed the same. So like, mm. and and if you ask it to, fun fact, if you ask ChatGPT to do a theatre monologue, it begins it every time with the stage is black apart from a spotlight on one ah. person. <laughs> um, it loves to do that. Um but yeah, I, I... Did you ask it to do it in the style of anything? No, I did once ask it to do something in the style of Harry Pinter and it absolutely didn't. Okay, yeah. Um, but then also, I, Harold Pinter is not part of the public domain. So apparently if you ask it to do Shakespeare, oh, right. it's great because yeah. it's got all of Shakespeare's works, but it doesn't have all of Pinter's back catalogue. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so do yeah. you think that playwriting prizes are going to be full of AI entries? Um, well, was it, I mean, the, 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 was it the forum that said, is it a threat to theatre or, mm, or whatever? I mean, I think, I think, I think the thing, the thing that I think is shocking about it is, is speed, like in two ways. For me, it's less surprising that it can do it and less sort of, I don't go, oh, that means it's going to change my world. But it's when you ask it to do a Shakespearean sonnet and it's the speed it can do it. That's the thing that I go, oh, okay, we are in a completely new world you know and i think saying is it a threat to theater is like the ship has so conclusively and sailed like a long time ago it's like is the grass a threat to theater a car's a threat to theater it's 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 here it's like it is and you know it's it's 
only going to be more and more sophisticated. Of course it can do emotion. It, it can do it now. It's going to be, you know, give it three or four months. It's going to be able to do it. I think if we did this exercise, say we do this again next year or we do it later, we should do this exercise again. Because mm. I bet in that time, in six months or a year, you will not be able to tell the difference. So then it's a really interesting philosophical question, isn't it? Is whether if you can't tell the difference, what's going on? What is, what point is the, is something happening in an audience and an art having an effect? Then it might as well be AI or not. It doesn't matter. But I'm not convinced that is the only point of art. I think it is a, for me, it's a human to human connection. And that I think is the difference between art and entertainment or show business i think if you only work in art if you only work in show business then i think there are a lot of jobs that are probably going to go because if you want to write toy story 5 in the next year in a year's time probably the best thing to do would be to feed toy stories one two three four into ai and get it to generate the sequel and then give it to a really good writer to polish it up and that's probably a lot quicker and a lot easier um, not that there's no art in Toy Story. We both know there's lots of art in Toy Story, but that's why you might give it to a writer to polish or you might give them help, you know, they might use it to prompt certain things. But I think, um, but if you're an artist and you're a human artist who wants to commune through art to other humans and express things and talk about the world and make connections that only a human can do, then the very nature it's human is going to be the appeal. So I imagine a future where we've got, like now you have, organic food and commercially farmed food you're going to have organic art which is humanly generated by humans and that's potentially more expensive because it's going to require human endeavor and you can have to pay those humans properly and then you might have ai art which is quite cheap but is you know doesn't come from a human being and you can choose it's yeah i think it's going to change the world i think forget theater it's going to change the world in very very quickly you know, there's a really good article by the guy who created it about how it will change the world. He says, we're going to have to have a, a living wage for everybody, regardless of whether you work or not, because there's not going to be enough jobs. And the things that are going, the only things that are going to hold their value are property and business, not service, not, not like what That's we so traditionally depressing. think is work. Yeah. It's, it's a completely different way of thinking about economics. So it's really, it's great to get into all of this in one's head because this is the world, not just for our children, but for us in five, 10 years or less. But for art, it, I think it will reflect back on going, the challenge, I think, is just for people to be honest. You know, there was a singer this week as well. I don't know if you saw, she was, I can't remember who she was, um, but she was saying that she's very happy to for people to use AI to sample her voice or generate new songs with her voice as long as she gets 50% of the royalties. Mm. She's totally fine with that. So I think there's going to be more and more, very quickly, more and more different ways of um, using it. And we're going to have to, the, the things that's going to fall behind is legal systems and economics and all of that. I think I just want people to be honest. I think it's great that they, AI can do it, but let's be honest about whether a person did it or it was a mix or it was, you know, a computer. But it's, it's, I find it like it really forces you to live in the future, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? It forces you to go, I'm living in the sort of Jetsons world of my, mm. whether it's a dystopia or a utopia, you are living in it and you cannot hold on to the past. You know, you've just got to go with it and it's going to look completely different. And something like this, when it's so, the speed of it, both what it can do and how quickly it's developing is um, terrifying and inspirational in equal measure i think what do you feel 
Um, I think, so it just makes me think of, I agree with everything that you've said. And and I think that's a nice way to think about it in terms of like, is it a handmade mm. piece of clothing or a machine made piece of clothing? Like those are two different things. Um, but it makes me think of the science fiction magazine Clark's World, which publishes short stories. And they've always had open submissions since ever since they've been going, which is a long time. Um, and they've just closed their submissions for the first time ever. And mm. the person who runs it said that he had to close it because they got so many, they inundated with AI generated stories. Mm. And he said, the thing is we can tell, we absolutely can tell, don't think that you're sliding under the radar, but we read every submission and we currently yeah. have too many submissions to stay open yeah. because we'll never catch up. So all the people who are sending in thousands of AI generated short stories are ruining it for the real humans who mm. have spent all their time writing their short stories. Mm. And at the moment, I'm sure he can tell, but, but will he be able to in a year's time? I don't know. And it relates to what we were talking about last week, doesn't it? I mean, that's really interesting because we were talking last week about, you know, about theatres being open and the importance of that, because you can write a play and, you know, having an open submissions policy. Um, if, someone could use AI to write a play, at least, even if they did it for their first one to get an opportunity, they're going to have that same problem, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there are very sort of practical problems with it, aren't there? It's fascinating. Perhaps we'll have to lock writers in a room and film them writing. So we know so they, they did it. prove they actually did it. And they have to write with a quill yeah. um, or a pen, at least. I, yeah, I was talking to a friend and someone said, oh, could you only accept handwritten things? And then it's like, but you could just... Copy, copy it. it I mean, yeah. if you care, it would cut things down because no one cares enough to copy out 30 pages or something handwritten, presumably. Mm. But yeah, how 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 do you watermark that? And also as an artist, the other thing is what happens if you, you're a writer and then it's interesting what you're saying about the, the, the writer stuff being the public domain, but once the AI can access all literature, which yeah. some version it will be able to, Potentially, as a, as a playwright, I go, well, it might well be able to write my next play better than I can write my next play. And then is, does that, is that a disincentive for me to even bother? Because it's like, actually, if my aim is to talk about that subject with the audience in this way, I'll let AI do it. But I think the answer to that is um, a thing that we did mention when uh, we were doing the course last week, which is this Carol Churchill, who's uh, – Carol Churchill is an amazing – very progressive playwright, progressive politically and progressive in terms of theatre. But she says an amazing thing about every play she writes, which is that it has to ask two questions, which are, um, who are we now and what is a play? And I think the first bit of that is about the content and the second bit of that is about the form. But it also means that she completely starts from scratch with everything she writes, which means that all her plays are very, very different. And maybe that's going to be part of the key of being an artist is that you you can't just fall into your tricks because an AI will be able to do all your tricks. Mm. So you're going to have to start again, almost like going, I'm a new artist with every bit of work to outrun the AI because the AI cannot be you in your soul and experiences, actually. Mm. It can only copy what you've done before. You have to force that innovation. So you've got it. It's going to have to innovate all the time. Maybe that's that's part of it too. Good subject. So what are we covering in the course this week? Drama. We're covering drama. Yeah, it's um 
obviously quite central to what we're doing. But it's interesting because whereas with other words like play or comedy or tragedy, one can, you know, not only define them, but you sort of have an innate sense of what they are. Drama, often people find quite hard to define and they sort of know what drama is. But if you try and say it in a sentence, not so sure. Is it is it crying? Is it sort of big emotions? Is it um, stuff happening on stage? Just stuff. So we're going to look to define it. Um, and I think the way that I'm going to define it, and certainly this is a useful thing for me as a writer um, to have in mind, is that basically drama and dramatic action, which is a which is what the character is doing in terms of drama on stage, is there's a character who wants something and is trying to overcome an obstacle to get that thing. That's it. And the truth is, nine times out of ten, or even 95% of the time, if I've got a problem with my play, it's the problem is that is that I haven't I don't know what the character wants exactly or the obstacle isn't big enough or they're not fighting enough they're not fighting hard enough to get that thing and it's one of those things that as I've just said it then it sounds quite simple and you sort of go well of course yeah it's obvious but uh it's amazing how often that is the problem with the play is that character is um dramatically inactive and it's amazing how hard it is to get that into your head and then get it into your bones as a writer because you you don't just want to intellectually understand it. You want to just have that as you write. That You basically cannot write a character without them having some desire or want to do something. And then, in, in you know, innately as a dramatist, you develop the skill to, of course, give them an obstacle for that. Um, so we're going to look at how you get that. We're going to come up with some, um, we're going to have a list of character and a want and what an obstacle to that might be. And then um, we're going to do an exercise which is set on a bus um, where somebody wants to come on the bus, but they don't have a ticket. And so they, they, they want to get a ticket. Their obstacle is the bus driver who won't let them on the bus without a ticket. Uh, they don't have any money. They can't buy a ticket. So what do they do? And then we're going to, either going to do a scene, depending on whether our participants can bear to improvise, or if they can't, then we'll write it as a scene on the board. But that's an exercise you can do at home because what you then, once you start to write the scene, is look out for the tactics. So the person trying to get on the bus, they might try to, um, uh, they might try to persuade the other person. They might try to charm them. They might try to seduce them. They might try to attack them. Um, all these different tactics. And and once you get into that, you're getting into this is what a scene is. It's a character who wants something. There's an obstacle. They're trying to get what they want, and they're using different tactics to get what they want. And if they try, if they use the same tactic continuously, it's going to get boring. So people tend to change the tactics, both in life and in drama. So we're going to get people to write some practice scenes with that. These are like doing your scales. If you're learning the piano, these scenes are not going to be feature in a potential play. They are absolutely not. And they don't have to be good. They are literally just to practice learning that muscle, you know, or exercising that muscle. And, you know, it's one of those things where, no matter how experienced a group of playwrights is, this is always worth coming back to because it's amazing how often you work with playwrights or you see them and you and you think that's the problem is that the character isn't working hard enough in this scene. It's become it's become passive. And there's a lot going on. You know, there might be like wars and crying and music and all the brilliant things that can happen on stage. If you have a central character in all of that who doesn't want something, the the audience will get bored within seconds. It's it's incredible. But that's what 
a drama is. And that, that's what we're going to look at. And then there's a second bit, which we will see if we get to. And it's a little bit more taking that idea a bit further, which is you so you know their wants, you know their obstacle. And then what's their need? And it's the combination of their want and need, which I, and this is a, rel- I've only recently started to, I mean, I did lots of these exercises about wants and needs, or whatever, but this is my version that I've recently started to find useful and enjoy playing with is the, so the idea is a want is what is a thing that the character knows they want. And a need is something that the character only slowly might discover they want over the course of the play or that the playwright knows, but the character doesn't. So they might want a million pounds, but they need a hug from their mum. Mm-hmm. And we're going to play with these two wants and the needs and coming up with different ones, because I think what you feel when you put those two together is you, you get a sense of the exterior story. They want a million pounds, but then the need gives you their interior story, but they need a hug from their mum. So the need is always in, it's not like I want to be king, but I need to go over here and win this war. It's the need has to be an internal thing. That's what we're going to look at. I think what happens is if you get those two things right, it can feel quite moving. It, you can go, oh, yeah, I can. Oh, that's really sad, you know. So I think it does introduce like an interior thing and an emotional thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be interior because it could be like they need to sort things out with their mum. You know, that's still an exterior thing. But it, I think this is what I want to experiment in the workshop. But I think often it's about the distance between those two things is where you can get dramatic hay. Do you know what I mean? So they're so unaware, you know, they're fighting so hard to be king when it's really all about their dad, you know, and you can see there's a Hollywood version of that, can't you, going on all the time. But again, it's one of those things that it's worth trying to get in your bones as a dramatist. And also I use it if I get stuck, if I get stuck with, or I'm planning a play to just go, okay, here's the character. What's their want? What's their obstacle? What's their need? And I may change it as I write, and I may never know what the need of the character is, or I may only find out once I've written the play and I go back and there's something not working about that character. But just to have these structures in your head means that you've got something to hold on to. And also, I like these structures where basically you can apply it to any any story and it will work on some level. That's really useful because it makes me feel like these are things you can learn that will make your story work for free. You just have to fill in the, the gaps you know, and it will function. So, um, yeah, that's today. I've got some questions for you. These are for three, three different people, three different questions. So Anhua asks, what plays would you recommend that any aspiring playwrights read or watch? Just what plays? There wasn't a, num- a specified no, number. Just okay, good, good. Specific, specifically good plays. Okay. Well, I mean, these, you know, it's like favorite plays, isn't it? Um, but, uh, I think, all of Mike Bartlett's back catalogue. They obviously. are very good. Um, <laughs> no, um, I think you, you really want to get a range, I think, because then you can understand all the things that theatre can do. So you've got the canon, haven't you? You've got like, you know, everything from Shakespeare, Chekhov, Ibsen, Miller, uh, Tennessee Williams, um, Harold Pinter, Samuel Beckett, um, John Osborne, and... But that is the the canon, isn't it? It's and I, and I think that is. I mean, it's like that will give you a sense of how the traditional form of theatre progressed from Shakespeare, and you can go back to the Greeks as well. But I mean, in terms of more contemporary theatre, Debbie Tucker Green, who's got an amazing play called Generations. You can go to Tony Kushner, who's got 
Angels in America, which is two big three-hour plays, whereas Debbie's play is Generations is 20 minutes long. There are all sorts of playwrights that you can examine. I love David Gregg. There's a brilliant play of his called The Cosmonaut's Last Message to the Woman He Once Loved in the Former Soviet Union. And the play is as sort of interesting and spiky and provocative as the title. I think a lot, for me, it's, I love Richard II. And it's, but it's sort of also knit up with the productions that I've seen and the things that have happened to me. But I was, I think underneath that, I would encourage writers to get as wide a range as possible because then you know all the different things you can do and, and to keep on trying to read plays that challenge that. Tamsin asks, what is the hardest and the easiest part of playwriting? The easiest bit for me is when you've got the play up and running, you've got your characters, you you know what roughly what's going to happen in the scene. The characters are really alive and wanting things and, and distinctive and they just start, you're just really enjoying the dialogue. It's flowing and you just feel that this only happens like at best once a year, you know, but even less than that. And you just feel like you are transcribing the play rather than actually writing it. That's great. And it's also really easy. And that is sort of the thing you're aiming at. I think the hard things change depending on what you're writing. So if you write for me, I find research quite hard. And I find it, I find the, the way of doing the research and then knowing the right amount of it to put in a play, I find that very, very difficult, which is probably why I don't write a lot of research heavy plays. And I only do it if I sort of really have to. I've done it more in television than in in theatre, I find that tricky. Um, so, I mean, but then again, what I tend to do also then is read a lot of books, do all their research sort of in that way, and then put it all out of the room and just sit and write the play. Um, so I think you learn all the things that you particularly find difficult, and then you find ways of sort of squeezing past the difficult things and negotiating them and meaning you don't have to do them. I always think of Bob Fosse, dancer, choreographer, who um, signature moves are sort of hunched shoulders and the hat which apparently is because he had a slightly hunched back and he was bald. And I think there's something about that with writers that you can cultivate the things you find difficult, the things you not you don't feel so good at, actually will sort of become your style, how you deal with them, how you deal with plot. You know, um, Nick Heitner talks about with Alan Bennett that he his plays don't really have much story. He doesn't really, not a lot happens in terms of story. A lot happens in terms of, the characters exploring things and dialectic and humor and they're very funny, but he just doesn't really do story. He doesn't, it's not really his thing. And, and so I think you just, that's part of his style. And I think that maybe sometimes rather than trying to be a writer that, you know, hits every single thing that you feel a writer should do, maybe listen to those instincts and that's part of how you write. And what's an example of a play that has story and a play that doesn't have a story? Well, Tony Kushner, brilliant writer, um, was listening to an interview with him and he summed it up. The difference between television and theatre, and I'm being reductive, he's talked about this for a long time, he's a very, very eloquent, supremely intelligent man and to reduce it down to one soundbite is awful. But for the point of this, essentially he talked about television being a narrative form and theatre being a dialectic form. And what that means is essentially in television and like in novels, you're mainly reading or watching to sort of know what happens next. It's it, what's going to happen next. What's the next plot development? What's in the box? What's it, who's what, what's their relationship? What's going to happen in the next scene? The next scene. Um, whereas 
in theatre, and this is broad, and of course they both do both, but in theatre broadly the emphasis is more on dialectic, it's more on two different opinions working it out, two different uh, uh, views on a situation or views on the world or views on the economy or views on how why someone is sad. It thrives on on figuring out that in dialogue. And so that's sort of, I think, the more I do both, the more I understand that that does explain why you get writers who are great playwrights but just cannot really write screen writing. And you get great screenwriters who can't really write plays because I think their focus is something quite different. And so there are, so for, so there are lots of plays where, if you look at Agatha Christie's plays, they are story, story, story. They are thrillers on stage. They're introduce everybody. There's, you know, there's a murder, who did it, revelations about character, investigations. You, you do uncover character. And I think her, as a, particularly as a dramatist, was actually more interested in character. It was always straining to, to depict that. But her instinct for story just took over and she wrote thrillers, you know. So if you can see The Mousetrap, that's what that is. And then on the other side, Waiting for Godot is the sort of epitome of no story. Two people wait for someone to arrive who doesn't come or nothing happens twice, as it was put. Story is the sort of optional extra in theatre, really. I think it's about, you do need characters who want something. So even in Waiting for Godot, they're waiting, they want Godot to arrive and or they want time to pass as maybe as quickly as possible so they entertain each other. There is a want underneath that. But you're really there to investigate ideas and character and stories part of your tools to do that, but it's not everything. And again, that's often the bump that writers find between going from theatre to screen is so much more emphasis on story mechanics and how it works and all those sorts of things. And if they're not, you know, really into television and all of those things, that can be bewildering or startling. That's the end of the podcast. Wow. Any any wisdom? Closing thoughts? Well, only the close the same closing thought from last week, which was I'm really keen to we're sort of broadcasting this out into the ether and I'm really keen to know if people are listening and if they're writing and what their views on things we talk about. You know, I'd love yeah, to know. Send what, us your views, send us your questions. Yeah, and about AI. Like I'd love to know what people make of that and that'd be fascinating. So yeah. Brilliant. Great. Send them to us, info at oldfirestation.org.uk. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Polk. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons, and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.